0: Like I say, we're going to do things in a bit of a funny order. Uh, if you've lifted one of the uh, handouts, you'll see that um, the way Paul approaches things in this last uh, section of First Thessalonians is interesting. And, um, this happens often in, in Paul's letters. You can see at the start of chapter four, he uses the word "finally." He's coming to an end. He's He's reached his conclusion. He's he said what he wants to say. He's got to say one final thing. But, you know, Paul is like any good preacher. When he says finally, he doesn't really mean it. And there's lots more to come. And there's a whole two chapters uh, after the word finally in 1 Thessalonians. And I think what happens with Paul is that he allows the Holy Spirit to distract him. He, he, his thought patterns are, are led and guided by the Holy Spirit. We know that. That's how the Bible is written. It's written by holy men, carried along by the Holy Spirit. And Paul allows for the Holy Spirit to distract him, and he, he, he writes about the return of Christ. From the end of chapter 4 and the start of chapter 5, he takes a bit of a diversion, and he goes on to talk about the hope that we have and the comfort that we have through the return of Christ. And so we're going to leave that section until next week. Okay, that's what we're going to be looking at next Tuesday night. Tonight, what I want us to look at is chapter 4, verses 1 to 12, and then we're going to skip out of whole section and move to verse 12 of chapter 5, and then work through to the rest at the end of the chapter. And I think that's because I think that's where Paul comes back to what he's saying and is in his finally. So let me read God's word for us. And I'll try and highlight the verses as we go along. First Thessalonians chapter 4, starting reading in verse 1. This is God's word to us. Finally then, brethren, we urge and exhort in the Lord Jesus... That you should abound more and more, just as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God. For you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That you should abstain from sexual immorality. That each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification And honor not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter because the Lord is the avenger of all such as we also forewarned you and testified. For God did not call us to uncleanness but in holiness. Therefore he who rejects this does not reject man But God, who has also given us his Holy Spirit. But concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another, and indeed you do so toward all the brethren who are in Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more, that you also aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business. And to work with your own hands, as we commanded you, that you may walk properly toward those who are outside and that you may lack nothing. And we urge you, sorry, skipping on then to verse 12 of chapter 5, chapter 5 verse 12. And we urge you, brethren, to recognise those who labour among you and who are over you in the Lord, and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. Be at peace among yourselves. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with all. See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good both for yourselves and for all. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the Holy Spirit. Do not despise prophecies. Test all things. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit, soul and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. Brethren, pray for us. Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read to all the holy brethren grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Well, whenever I was studying for ministry in college, we spent a lot of time in class. Obviously, we spent a lot of time in the library. You'll be encouraged to know that. Uh, we also spent a lot of time playing pool. There's a pool table in Union College And there's something that goes on around the pool table for ministry students. Whenever you you get people who are studying for ministry together, well, it's like any profession. You know, if you put a bunch of teachers in a room together, they talk about teaching, don't they? And everybody else gets really fed up with the conversation. Well, put a bunch of ministry students around a pool table and you talk about ministry. That's simply what happens. And we were all studying for ministry, so we were all happy with the conversation. And I had a, this running conversation with one of my friends at college about what is the sermon, the one sermon that you're most looking forward to preach whenever you leave training and enter into your own charge. And the sermon that we always came back to was a sermon on 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and specifically verse 11. And it was a sermon which we entitled Boring Boring Christians. (coughs) Boring, boring Christians. You can see where we took the title from, verse 11. Paul tells us, aspire to lead a quiet life. To mind your own business and to work with your own hands. It has to be admitted that, uh, that we came to the conclusion that that's what we were most looking forward to preach as a reaction against the upbringing that we had had within the church. Every youth rally, every event, every scripture union meeting consisted of a speaker telling a bunch of teenagers that in this room there is the potential to change the world. The potential in this room is enormous. You need to go out there and change the world for Jesus. There was even a song uh, by a band called Delirious which is called History Makers and The chorus proclaimed, I'm going to be a history maker in this land. And what I failed to grasp as a teenager is that to become a history maker, to change the world for Jesus, doesn't look very exciting. The speakers I was listening to would would ramp us up. We would be worked up, filled with adrenaline to go out and change the world. But the truth is... The life that Paul is calling the Thessalonians to in chapters 4 and 5 is not a life filled with worldly excitement. It's not a life filled with adrenaline. It looks simple. It looks plain. It even looks boring. Lead a quiet life. Mind your own business. And work with your own hands. But here's the thing. Living that kind of life is revolutionary in a world of people who are only out to please themselves. Do you have your Bibles open at First Thessalonians. As I said, we're, we're doing something different. We're leaving out that middle section. I, I suppose to, to give you an explanation of why I think we can leave out that middle section, I, I've said that Paul uses the word finally, He goes on to say, we urge and exhort in the Lord. We urge and exhort in the Lord. And if you look at verse 12 of chapter 5, well, he's urging again. And if you look at verse 14 of chapter 5, he's exhorting again. So he starts with urging and exhorting, moves on to talk about something else, and then he goes back to his urging and exhorting. The other thing that connects these two sections is the word sanctification. Um, The word sanctification, which Paul says, is the will of God. In verse 3, this is the will of God, your sanctification. In verse 16, he talks about the will of God and then moves on in verse 23 to speak about how God will sanctify us. And we'll, we'll come to that in a moment. Let's start at verse 1 of chapter 4. We've noticed that the the letter to the Thessalonians is a really practical letter. It, It has lots of stuff to tell us about what a Christian looks like. The first three chapters, however, have dealt with The truth about about doctrine and teaching about who the Thessalonians are. It's based in the historical events that happened with the coming of Jesus Christ and his death on the cross. It's based on the truth of the things that happened at the time that Paul was with the Thessalonians and even since then. But Paul doesn't really, in the first three chapters, he doesn't put too much flesh on the bones. He told them that they should work out their faith and practice. He told them that they should labor in their love, but he doesn't give much practical advice about how to do that. That's what he does in chapters 4 and 5. That's why we have this section that we're looking at tonight. This is the section where the rubber meets the road. We've been asking the question, what does a Christian look like? In chapters 4 and 5, we see a real picture of how a Christian looks. Before we turn to that specifically, I want you to notice something important about the Christian life in verse 1 of chapter 4. What is it that Paul is urging and exhorting? Well, it's that the Thessalonians would abound more and more. It's that they would walk in a way that will please God. You see the Christian life is not to be lived in an armchair, the Christian life is a life of walking, not a life of sitting. In the Christian life we grow, we develop, we abound more and more. There were older evangelical movements who preached a gospel of salvation that was something like you should get saved, you should book your ticket to heaven. And then just hold on as tight as you can until you get to heaven. That's not what Paul's urging and exhortation is. He wants the Thessalonians to to keep on living life in this world. But as they do, they grow in their knowledge and their love of the Lord Jesus. They put sin to death. They grow in holiness. They become more and more like Jesus. In the way that they think and in the way that they act. And Paul gives us a word which defines that. Verse 3 of chapter 1. The will of God is your sanctification. That's what God wants for your life. And that's the general principle that Paul's going to work under. From uh, up to verse 12 of chapter 4 and then from verse 12 in chapter 5. These instructions, what Paul's telling us to do. They're all about our sanctification. But, like I said, if you scan down to verse 23 of chapter 5, Paul writes, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. The will of God is your sanctification. And this is something that God will do for you. Isn't that amazing? God's will for your life is something that God does for you. Paul gives us a whole list of instructions for our sanctification, but he also prays that God would sanctify us. So we see that in sanctification there is this great mystery where God works in us to to cleanse us from all sin, but the way that God works in us is through our working, we we work out what he is working in. It's it's by us taking to heart the instructions that we find here and we find elsewhere in the Bible, that when we seek to live lives that are holy and pure and blameless, God sanctifies us. It's God who's doing it in us, but the way that God does does it is is through our working. Your sanctification is God's will and your sanctification is God's work. But the way that God carries out his will and his work in your life and in the whole world is for you to join in with what God is doing. Well, let's look then at the instructions that Paul gives. He begins by speaking about sexual purity in verses 3 to 8. I think it's at least interesting, it's instructive for us, that this is an issue which needed talked about in the very earliest days of the church. We can often be convinced that the times that we live in are are an all-time low. The truth is we're not the first generation of Christians who have had to deal with issues of sexual impurity. It's something that's always been important to the Church of Christ. It has always been a relevant subject throughout the ages. I've noted before that this letter of Thessalonians has much to say to our young people. And that is true, not least in this exhortation, to remain sexually pure. But it doesn't only, it is not only relevant, should I say, to our young people. And here's what is The most important thing to say about this, there is only one place where sexual activity is permitted and that is in the marriage of one man to one woman. There are many reasons for that, let me mention a few of them. The first is that it's what God's word teaches and we shouldn't need to have more reason than that. God says so. And so that's the way it is. We shouldn't need to have more reason than that. But it's good to know that, that God's word is both true and it's wise. It's wise for humanity to live that way. So it's wise that sexual activity remains within the bonds of marriage between one man and one woman. Because that is the type of relationship that can carry the weight, both the the emotional weight and the the, the physical weight of the consequences of sex. There is an emotional vulnerability that comes through a sexual relationship that is huge. It's not to be underestimated. Only the depth of love and commitment found in a marriage can support that vulnerability. Well, also, I think the consequences of sex are obvious. Children. Children. Children are a consequence and so where possible children are best brought up within a family unit, within a marriage of a man and a woman, having both a mother and a father. That's not always the case, but it's the best case scenario. So God's word says so. That's why sex is to be reserved for marriage. Marriage can support the weight of a sexual relationship But to return to our passage, in verse 5, Paul uses this as an example of how Christians are to live lives that are different to their Gentile neighbours. Saving sex for marriage is something Christians do to maintain a distinctive identity in a world that treats sex as a pastime and therefore disregards God. That's what was happening in the Roman world at the time, Thessalonica. So It's happening in our world today. And so we maintain a distinctive identity by holding to a biblical sexual ethic. Let me add my exhortation to Paul's. Keep yourselves sexually pure keep sex for marriage don't live according to the customs of this world which try which say things like try before you buy in our world today the expectation is that people will live together long before they're married but we must maintain our distinctive identity as christian people just like paul urged the thessalonians to do by abstaining from sexual immorality Let's move on to chapter 4 and verses 9 to 10 where Paul encourages us once again to love one another. Um, He says this is something he shouldn't really need to write about. He shouldn't need to to have to say this. It's obvious for the Christian fellowship that we should love one another. Something we know we should do but we don't always do it very well. This is love not just in a static way, Paul says, it's, it's a love that increases, it grows more and more. But didn't our Lord Jesus say that this is how the world would know we are his disciples? Again, you, you see the, the, the way that it's outward looking. This is a witness. If we love one another the world will see then we come to verses 11 and 12. Boring, boring Christians. There's a a current writer and thinker called Jordan Peterson. Some of you might have heard of Jordan Peterson. He's a Canadian clinical psychologist. He's become very popular on the internet over the last few years. His videos on YouTube have millions of views. I can't say if Jordan Peterson is a Christian, but what I can say is, if he's not a Christian, he's close to the kingdom. And one of the big things he teaches is something called personal responsibility. He he recently wrote a, a book called Twelve Rules for Life, an antidote to chaos. And one of his rules are very simple rules. One of his rules is set your own house in order before you criticise the world. Set your own house in order before you criticise the world. And he makes a really big deal out of young people who are happy to join marches about global warming and then Instagram about it from a smartphone, which was produced probably by burning lots and lots of carbon and shipped from China, burning lots and lots of carbon. He's basically saying, you've got to take responsibility for yourself before you start complaining about what's going on in the world. He says, before you complain that the world is a mess, start with your own bedroom. (coughs) Did you make your bed this morning? He's really retelling, isn't he? The the story of, of the boy on the beach. You've heard the story of the boy on the beach and there's hundreds of thousands of starfish lying across the beach drying out and the boy's lifting one at a time and he's throwing them back into the ocean. And a passerby says to the boy, you can't possibly help all the starfish. And the boy replies, no, but I can help this one. And he threw another into the sea. Both of these examples are really borrowing from the biblical wisdom that Paul gives here in this passage. He's basically saying, if you want to change the world, you've got to start with yourself. Take Take your, your your own affairs. Get them in order. Live your own life. And the amazing thing, the amazing thing that God did with this is that by Christians living this way, within a few centuries, God used these boring Christians living boring lives to turn the world upside down, to convert the Roman Empire. Christianity. So that Christianity is the dominant religion in the Western world. Because one person, man or woman, child, look at what Paul said and decided I'm going to aspire. What do you aspire to? I aspire to live a quiet life, to mind my own business, to work with my hands, A change in the world starts with personal responsibility. The thing is, while they're a bit boring, they're not that easy to do these things. They require discipline. Making your bed every morning is something you have to get up and remember to do every single day. It requires us to be disciplined and how easy is it to just leave it? Because we live in a, we're in the age of a pandemic. Nobody's coming into the house. Nobody's going to see it. These are not easy things to do. It's easier to leave them undone. But Paul, the Apostle Paul, urges us, he exhorts us to do these things. Well, look, I am the first to admit that I don't have good hands. I, I do believe that by the power of the Holy Spirit, God has given me a gift of, of a mind that can think things through, that can take things to their logical conclusion. I, I can read, I can take information in. I believe God has gifted me to, to preach and to teach. That's a gift from God to me, but I don't have good hands. I'm not good at working with my hands. I can't work with metal. I can't work with wood. I have very little ability in any sort of DIY. If I need to change a plug, I Google it. I Google how to rewire a plug. Now, shame on me, right? But, however, some of you will know that at the manse, we're trying to live out this principle. Of working with our hands. We've planted vegetables in the garden, we've put up a run, we have half a dozen hens, some of them thanks to Kenny. We're in the process of building a greenhouse and you know this better than I do. There's something genuinely rewarding isn't there in engaging with creation in a physical way. Weeding the ground. To, to push back physically on the effects of the fall upon this world. Weeds are a result of the fall. And every time you pull one up, you are pushing back on the sinfulness of this world. Building things. Making tools. Building a, a, a shed that will you know, give you give you Shelter from the elements, planting a seed and watching it grow, eating vegetables you've grown yourself, eating eggs laid by your own hands. I'm not saying everybody has to do this sort of thing, but what I can say is that when Paul tells us here to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, to work with your own hands, he's telling us to do something good. He's telling us to do something for our own good and for God's glory. These are not exciting things. They don't seem like they're changing the world. Boring, boring Christians. And again, Paul connects this in verse 12. He says it's it's about our lifestyle aiding our witness to non-believers. He says this kind of life means we walk properly towards those outside of the church fellowship so that we may lack nothing. Now, this kind of mindset, this kind of lifestyle that Paul's encouraging here, I think it's going to be increasingly important for us in the church as the world becomes more and more like the world of the first century. A world where... Christians and not only Christians but the Christian worldview is in a minority. A world where we find ourselves no longer at the centre of society, but on the fringes of society. I mean look at the look at the way the media have just gone after Edwin Poots. Not for any of his his political policies. What was the one word that came up across the board? Creationist. How dare he hold those views? We live in a world that hates Christians. It hates Jesus. This is a world where we could be totally cast out. If we, if we hold to a biblical sexual ethic, for example, as as companies and corporations chase money that is is found in affirming lgbt what does that mean for employees that are christians within those organizations we're kidding ourselves if we if we don't realize that there's that there is potentially at least a day coming when you will not be able to work for a company unless you sign a document that says you affirm homosexuality and transgenderism so what do we do about that? How are we going to survive? I don't think I think that a little self-sufficiency would do no harm. It would be a good idea for us in church to make sure that that everybody within our fellowship is provided for and we can do that. We do that by living quiet lives. We do that by minding our own business. We do that by working with our hands. So that whenever I need a plug wired, you know, it's happened. It happened whenever, before we moved into the mass. This kind of thing's going on. People are sharing their skills and talents. Those who are good with their hands are working with them. And as we move to a conclusion, you see, we, we see that what Paul is calling us to, it could seem that he's calling us to live as hermits. Couldn't it? Lead a quiet life, mind your own business. It sounds like he said, go off and live by yourself in the, in the desert somewhere. But that's not what he's calling us to. And We need to look on to chapter 5, and verses 12 to 22 what we've just seen are about the practicalities of what we can do personally, our personal responsibility. But our personal responsibility sits within a context. We live within the church. And so verses 12 to 22 of chapter five are about the practicalities of our life together as a church fellowship, as a community. We saw last week that a Christian is someone who loves the local church. Paul expands on that point here in very practical ways. How do we love the local church? Well, Paul begins with the elders. And he says that the elders should be recognized and esteemed very highly. And look at the main way Paul says we can do this. The last sentence in verse 13. You see what he says? Be at peace amongst yourselves. Be at peace among yourselves. That's how you recognise those who labour among you. That's how you esteem them very highly. I can't tell you how much I desire this as your minister. And I'm sure that I speak for the Kirk Sessions on this matter. If you want to show your esteem for us in the Church of Christ as under shepherds appointed by the Lord Jesus, then living at peace with one another is a massive help to us. I have seen conflict in churches in the past but thankfully I've not seen it yet in either King's Mills or Jared's past. But it puts the elders on edge when there is conflict in the church. I've seen ministers lose sleep over it. I've seen ministers leave their charge over it. If you want to do what Paul is urging in verses twelve and thirteen, then being at peace among yourselves is a great way to do that. We're moving on then to verses fourteen to twenty-two. Paul is breaking down what it looks like to be at peace. So he says, be at peace among yourselves. And then he exhorts the the church in Thessalonica how to do that. He says, warn, warn those who are unruly. Comfort the faint hearted. Uphold the weak. Be patient with all. See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone. Just because they've done something evil to you, don't do it back to them. Always pursue what is good for yourself and for everybody. For everybody in the fellowship, pursue what is good for everybody else. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and in everything give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the Spirit, do not despise prophecies, test all things. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every evil. And here's the the amazing thing. If you try to live like this, an amazing thing happens. It becomes easier. As we try to do it, it becomes easier for us. The Holy Spirit works in us and we increase more and more. It's really hard to be in conflict with someone if you are praying for their good. It's really hard to be in conflict with them if you're praying for their good. You should try it. If there's someone in the congregation that you struggle with, do what Paul exhorts here. We warn those who are unruly, but we also realise that they too are weak and sinful people as we are. We seek their good. We try and see the best in them and the best for the situation. We realize that maybe they're faint-hearted. Maybe there's a reason why they're acting the way they do. So we be patient. We be patient with everyone. And we rejoice. We rejoice and we pray without ceasing. And we give thanks to God in everything. If we're doing those things, Conflict will be decreased. We will be living at peace. Verses 16, 17 and 18 are great advice. The next time you you want to gripe or moan or complain about something, stop and instead rejoice. Pray. Give thanks. We're way over time. There's still lots of instruction from Paul. This is one of those places in the New Testament we could have a a sermon on on almost every word within these verses. What Paul's doing as we come to a close, as he moves to the end of this passage and the end of this letter, is he's pushing us back to God. He's he's encouraging us to look to God in all things. He says if God is, is speaking in his word, then we should trust it, we shouldn't despise it, we shouldn't quench the Holy Spirit speaking. We should test all things against God's word. By doing that we hold fast to what is good, we abstain from evil. So if you're unsure about how to live your life, if you're unsure about what to do in a certain situation or with a certain life circumstance, and you want to know the will of God for your life, Don't try and manipulate things so that you get what you want. Think about your sanctification. Think about your purity. Think about the body of Christ that is the church. Think about what God teaches about these things through the Holy Spirit in the scriptures. Make a decision based on those criteria. The reason that Paul is pushing us back to God here at the end The reason he does that is because this is too heavy. This is too heavy a burden for us to carry on our own. We're going to mess up. We're going to get into conflict. We will succumb to sexual temptation. We will mind other people's business as well as our own. We cannot do everything that Paul exhorts us to in these verses. But we can rely on God to do them in us. God has begun a good work in us through the death and resurrection of Christ. God has called us to faith in Jesus and he will continue on what he has called us to. He will sanctify you completely. Isn't that good news? He will do it in his own time. As you keep looking to him, God will make sure that your whole spirit soul and body is preserved blameless. He who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. Let us pray together.